I want to begin today by reading from Hebrews chapter 11. Unfortunately, with these virtual services, we are uh, time limited. And so that's probably a good thing for most of you because it means that I won't drone on and on, but we're going to move rather quickly. And one of the things that needs to happen is I can't read the entire chapter of of, uh, Hebrews 11, even though I'd like to. So I'm hoping that you will continue on from where I'm leaving off this morning. But let's begin in our Bibles in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is confidence of what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commanded, commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that, what we, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he, was condemned, he condemned the world and became heir of, of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so, from this one man, as he is as good as dead, come descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Again, I encourage you to keep reading in that chapter. If there's one thing that pastors love, it's a good sports analogy. I usually try and avoid them because not everyone likes sports and not everyone even understands sports. But occasionally I'll trot out a a tried-and-true sports metaphor, and this is going to be one of those times. I love sports. Watching sports is one of the few things that I do to unwind. But even more than watching sports, I love sports trivia and minutia. I love to debate sports questions, particularly highly hypothetical ones that there'll never be a clear answer for. In fact, I have a group of friends that join me in a group chat And we debate back and forth on hypothetical scenarios that are far too complicated that we have to spend days even explaining what the scenario is. We do it for fun, and we do it to tell someone else they're clearly and unquestionably wrong about something that no one can prove. And when you have these sorts of debates, 
one theme comes up over and over, and that is, who are the all-time greats? In what order do we rank Gretzky and Howe and Lemieux and Orr? What's the greatest baseball team ever assembled? Rank the CFL teams and explain why the Rough Riders are, rough riders are clearly last on that list. I, I, I had to make a Rough Riders joke while none of you were here to throw things at me. I'm running out of time to do that. One of the greatest sources of debates in any sport is who gets into the Hall of Fame. And I love Halls of Fame because I love to dissect who belongs and who doesn't. What's the difference between the Hall of Very Good and the Hall of Great? When I hear the, word, the, the term Hall of Fame, my spidey senses start to tingle. Ready to take on anyone who thinks that Pete Rose belongs in Cooperstown or, or whether Pavel Bure belongs in Toronto. I love to bait these kind of things. And today, our passage tells us of some other all-time greats. This passage is known in many circles as Faith's Hall of Fame. The, the Hall of Faith. And so to begin today, I want to tell you a story. And it's the story of one of the scariest moments of my life. Years ago, when I was still a youth pastor, I was working in my first official posting, and I decided to do a, a scavenger hunt at a mall. We had a group of about 50 kids, and to my delight, that night, there was a new teenager. His name was Mike. And Mike was going to be trouble. I could tell from the moment I met him that this kid was going to cause me grief. He just had that look about him. So we made our way to a mall in Calgary. And the building in question is actually built on a great big circle. And so I set the teams and I assigned leaders to the teams. And my plan was to walk around the circle over and over again, just keeping an eye on everyone. Now, there are two ways to tell this story, and I'm going to tell it from my perspective. Here's how things unfolded for me. Everything was going really well. I'd come across several groups many times, and everyone seemed to be having fun and behaving themselves, and things were going well. But one of the items that was on the list of things that the, that the kids could get for a certain number of points was for a boy in the group to go and get a full uh, makeup test thing done at one of those makeup places. And there was extra points if it was a boy who did it. So about an hour into things, I started noticing boys in the groups having this makeup stuff, and I didn't think anything of it. But about an hour into things, I rounded a corner, and I look up, and I see Mike running at full speed. And I mean, just, and, and Mike was, Mike's taller than me and bigger than me, and just flying. And he had so much makeup on his face, he clearly was trying to prove a point. He had so much makeup on his face that it looked like a mask. And he's taken off down the hallway of this mall. And then all of a sudden, I see three security guards round the corner giving chase. You know how sometimes when you're in deep, deep trouble, time seems to slow down? Well, in the less than two seconds it took me to assess the situation, every thought possible went through my head. Uh, you know, this is it. This is how I get fired. And this is how my name will appear in the newspaper. Idiot youth pastor takes 50 kids to a mall and is shocked when something goes wrong. But I also had to do something. So, uh, but what? So I, I just took off running after them. 
like a dog chasing a car. I, I don't know, to this day, I don't know what I'd do if I'd have caught them. But there we were, all doing our best impressions of Usain Bolt and barreling down the hallway of a mall. Now, I was slightly more athletic than I am then than I am now, but not much. So they all outran me pretty quickly. And at the exit to the mall, you've got to do this little turn off of the main circle. And as I rounded that, I could finally see down far enough. Because of the circle, I couldn't see all the way. But I could finally see down this hallway, and suddenly the picture became much more clear. The security guards weren't actually chasing Mike. He and the security guards were chasing someone else, someone who had a shiny new iPad in his hands, an iPad that still had the tags on it. And so, just as these things became clear to me, the, this iPad thief slammed through the doors to the outside, and Mike jumped, leapt through the air, and barrel tackled him into a snowbank. <clears throat> I got there just in time to see these security guards picking Mike up off the ground and shaking his hand and thanking him and dealing with this iPad thief. And he stuck around long enough to fill out a witness report for the police, and then no one has ever seen Mike again. To this day, we don't know where Mike came from or where Mike went to. He just disappeared. And so I mentioned that there's two ways to tell this story, and that's the one from my perspective as it happened, but the better one, if you want to get creative, is that you say that a guy who no one had ever seen before showed up, put on a mask, found a criminal, and brought him to justice. And so Mike, in my mind, is a superhero, and you will not be able to convince me otherwise. There's a great pastor's story about a dog and a rabbit. The dog was lying lazily in the sun on the deck at a country home, and suddenly a large white rabbit ran across the field. The dog did what dogs do and took off running after this rabbit. And he chased it over some fields and hills, and soon other dogs were joining in, and everyone's chasing this rabbit. And this pack of dogs is barking and carrying on and running. But shortly, other dogs started petering off, leaving the pack. As they got farther and farther away, as things wore on, one by one, these other dogs dropped out. Only one dog continued, and that's the dog that had been at it the longest. And eventually, he found that rabbit and did what dogs do when they find rabbits. So what, what does any of this have to do with our spiritual lives? I've just droned on for, you know, whatever it is, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, about a, a caped crusader superhero youth kid and a dog chasing a rabbit. What is the connection between all of this? And for that, we need to ask an obvious question. Why did I panic when I saw Mike running with security in pursuit? And why didn't the other dogs continue their chase of the rabbit? And the answer is simple. In both cases, the goal was unclear. I had not seen the person Mike was pursuing. And the other dogs had not seen the rabbit that they were chasing. They were just caught up in the excitement. And so when the objective remains unseen, it's hard to persevere. Until you see the prize, chase can be difficult. And we all will lack the faith and the passion and the determination to keep up with a cause 
if we can't identify that cause. Faith is a common denominator. Everyone alive expresses faith in something. No one can live even a single day without exercising some kind of faith. When you woke up this morning, you flipped on a light switch and you had faith that it would work. When you get in your car, you turn the key, you have faith it's going to start. When you place a letter in a mailbox, you have faith that it's going to... Okay, no, we don't maybe have that much faith in Canada Post, but that's okay. And these are all things that... When, there, there have been times when you go to do that, they don't work. We've all flicked a light switch and gone, what on earth? Oh, right, okay, the light bulb's out. We've all gone to start a car and it hasn't started, but those are surprising to us when they happen because we just automatically have faith that they will work. Your faith is only as good as the object of that faith. And I don't think I need to remind anyone where we place our faith as followers of Christ. But therein lies the dilemma that we are faced with. Unfortunately, none of us has ever seen God. And moreover, Scripture actually tells us that we would die even if we could. So, for us Christians, we are commanded to place our faith in something that we will not see in this lifetime. Our Scripture passage this morning tells us from the very beginning that this is true about faith. Right from verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And so when it comes to our spiritual lives, our definition of faith is completely different than other definitions of faith. And this is all according to the writer of Hebrews. We are then treated to verse after verse, reminding us of the great men and women, the great pillars of faith from the Jewish and Christian tradition. The people that we revere, the people that our ancestor faith reveres, Men and women who did amazing things of faith, on faith, alone. Faith in a God that was unseen, but certainly not unfelt. And then, at the end of the passage, which I haven't read yet, we read something that changes everything. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 36. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. That's rough. These great men and women, the ones who would go down in the hall of fame of Christianity, never received what they had been promised, according to Hebrews. They faced unspeakable horrors for following and having faith in God. And in their lifetime, they never received the thing that they were promised they would get. But then the script flips in, chapter, in, in verse 40. Since God had planned something better for us, 
so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We talked last week about how true disciples of Christ will not have an easier time of things. They will have a harder time of things in this realm. And without, chap- without verse 40 in this chapter, it is a pretty dark reminder of how discouraging working for Christ can sometimes be. But verse 40, all the reassurance of this one line, God planned something better. So what does this kind of Hall of Fame faith have to do with us? How does this kind of Hall of Fame faith come to us? Fortunately, Paul has a simple answer in Romans 10. He says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And so, after doing something I don't often do already, which is employing a sports analogy, I'm going to do something else I don't often do, and I'm going to parse some ancient language. As someone who speaks two languages, I can attest to the fact that translation is always imperfect. Words have connotations and slants and meanings that, once they get translated, get lost. And also, I was forced to take Greek in seminary, and it was a horrible experience, and I paid way too much money for it, so I'm going to get my money's worth. In the original Greek, there are two words that are used for word, as in word of God. And these two words are logos and rhema. And they're used seemingly interchangeably throughout Scripture, but they actually have different meanings. Logos is described by scholars to mean the general word, that is, the the general knowledge of God. The spoken or written word. Logos is achieved by reading and understanding God's word. But the word that is used in Romans 10, which I just read by Paul, when he talks about the word is not logos, it's rhema. And rhema is something different. Rhema is the action word of God. It is the spoken and doing word word of God. It's more, it's more than knowledge, it, it assumes faith already. Because true faith has hands and feet. It's not due to great scholarly knowledge of God's word that Peter walked on water. Which is not to imply that knowledge of God's word is not worthy of pursuit. But no, Peter walked on water because Christ gave Peter a word. A word that implied action. Christ simply said, come. Not just knowledge, action. True faith comes by hearing and living the word of God. We live by faith and we walk by faith. And verse 6 of our passage today reminds us that without faith we cannot please God. So if we cannot please God without faith, and faith comes from hearing and living the word of God, then it stands to reason that God is pleased when we are making his word manifest here and now, in this place. See, logos is when we study the word of God, and rima is what happens when the Holy Spirit takes hold and stirs those scriptures in our hearts. 
But how can we be stirred to action if we do not first take time to be still and study the Word of God, the Logos? And so here we have to have faith. And that faith requires action. But how do we persevere when we cannot see the object of our faith? How do we keep chasing a rabbit we have not seen? Billy Graham was famous for using the analogy of wind when describing God. He said, I've never seen God, have you? I've never seen the wind, but I've seen the effects of the wind. I promise you this. If you walk by faith, while you will not see the Lord in this realm, you will most assuredly see the effects of the Lord. The evidence of things unseen. The presence of wind is revealed by the leaves on trees. His presence is revealed to us. You and me. If all of us devoted ourselves to studying God's word, we'd be better for it to be sure. But if we stopped there, the world would be no better for it. And the world would not see the object of our faith. There is a reason this sermon is coming now. It's not part of a series or anything, but last week we talked about studying God's word and letting it change us from the inside out. About being the church rather than making up the church. About being disciples of Christ. And these things go hand in hand. We are commanded, commanded to be disciples of Christ and make disciples of Christ. We're not making our own disciples. The object of our faith, while unseen, must remain the central focal point of everything we do. And sometimes we get lost in that pursuit. Sometimes we are too focused on the here and now. The object of our faith is what we need to be pointing this world toward. We must be the ones who walk by faith as well as live by it. And then when the world sees the effect of God's mighty wind, when the world sees this generation rise up in a holy storm of wind, it will never be the same. And then when life is over, we can take our place among the saints in the greatest of all halls of fame, the one where there is no debate about who gets in and who does not, because it is adjudicated by only one person, Jesus Christ himself. Let us pray. Loving Father, we can be so entrenched in our own thinking that sometimes we doubt your word and question your promises, often wishing we had some concrete proof of your love for us. And yet we read in your word where it gives us all the affirmation of this absolute reality that we need. For your word and promises are sure, and your faithfulness stretches beyond the limits of time and space. Thank you for the gift of faith. And I pray that by day and by day, our loving trust in you and the reality of your word will become increasingly established within our hearts. We long to please you in all we say and do and are. And it is in Jesus' name and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen.
well, it's only appropriate then that if we've studied from Hebrews, we end with one of the most famous benedictions in Scripture, which also comes from Hebrews. Now, may the grace, may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good, so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.